Welcome to the Make Books Travel Podcast. I'm Marlene Seegers, co-founder of Two Seas Agency, a California-based literary agency that represents publishers, agents, and a select number of authors from around the world. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing international industry professionals who make books travel. For instance, from manuscripts to published book, from one language to another, or from page to screen. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 20th episode of the Make Books Travel podcast. Today, I'm speaking with French to English translator Yves Baudet, who lives in Colorado in the U.S., Eve is the first translator I'm speaking with on the podcast, someone who literally makes books travel. We discuss many things, including her professional journey, the rewards and challenges of being a translator from French to English, the American Translators Association, of which she is a director, the impact of the pandemic on her work, and why the English language book market is so challenging for books in translation. So I'm happy to introduce you to Eve Baudet. Hi, Eve. Thanks Hi. so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing? Great. I'm doing good. Thanks for. It's still sunny out, and pretty soon we're going to get some cold weather, I think. But <laughs> I'm doing good so far. All right. Good. You're you're in Colorado, right? Yeah, I'm in Colorado, mm -hmm. and, and Boulder, Boulder, not in Boulder, but in the Boulder County area. Mm -hmm. Okay. And does it get cold very soon in the year? Um, it depends. That's what's so interesting about living near the Rocky Mountains is the first year I moved here, it snowed and broke all the trees at the end of September. And oh, then wow. last year, it was like 100 degrees at the same time of year. So it can vary a lot. <laughs> oh, okay, right. You got to have a lot of different set of clothing. I exactly. Guess. <laughs> you can't put it away, right? Yeah. For right. For this okay. All right. Well, anyway, um, yeah, you're the, the very first translator that I'm interviewing on this podcast. So I'm very excited to welcome you as a guest today. And you are literally making books travel from one language to another, in your case, translating from French to English. Mm -hmm. And there are many topics I'd like to discuss with you with regards to not only your work as a translator, but also your position as director of the American Translators Association. But before going there, can Can you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners and outline your professional career so far? Yeah, thanks for, well, th first, thanks a lot for having me. I'm, and I'm super excited to be the very first translator on the show. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, I started in the language services, what we call the language services industry, kind of, you know, commercial selling, selling translations, right? Um, providing mm -hmm. translations in 1994. And I started working for a translation agency and I was a vendor manager. So I hired the other, tra you know, I hired translators. And that was in the Boulder, Colorado area where I still live. And, um, and that really taught me a lot about the industry, which was very, very helpful over the years besides translation itself, but also the industry. And um, then I worked for another translation company for a couple of years in Colorado. And then in 1999, I decided, I don't need you people, you know, <laughs> I can, <laughs> and I went off on my, um, my own background is um, I have a degree in French and political science. And then I have a, a master's degree from a U.S. university and also from a French university. And mm -hmm. so, and I, for my age, how, um, 
the there's not that many translation programs in the U.S. So a lot of people have a similar, I think, educational background, and especially in the U.S., where especially in my age, that maybe that didn't go to translation school because it didn't mm-hmm. exist, and it really doesn't here now. In the U.S., there's a couple programs that are well known, but with the whole size of the U.S., that's still just a drop in the bucket. So mm-hmm. most people, I think, whether they're my age or not, in the U.S. often don't have degrees in translation. So um, my degree is, like I said, in, I do have a degree in French, um, mm-hmm. but not in you know translation per Specific se. Specific translation, yeah. yeah. Which is mm-hmm. much more common, as people may know, in Europe to get mm-hmm. to have that. Yeah, and, interesting. Yeah. And much less common to work. In, I think people do work in Europe without it, but much less common to work in Europe if you don't have a translation degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and when you studied in France, was it specifically translation? No, um, I didn't do that. No, that, that was I was um, my background had been poli sci kind of, and so I did a European studies program, and mm-hmm. that was in the in northeastern France in Nancy, like Nancy and mm-hmm. Nancy Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> so then, and then, all right. Yeah. So um, yeah, so I started my own company that is me. I'm my own employee <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in 1999, and the company is Buddha International. So. Um, yeah, and as far as translation goes, um, specifically, I am certified. Um, I'm certified French English translator, and that certification um, in the U.S. is um, the American Translators Association offers that certification, and we'll talk a little bit more, I think, about the Translators Association. Mm-hmm. And so I have 26 years now of experience. Um, I translate for clients in the U.S. and Canada, um, you know, throughout Europe, so France, Belgium, Switzerland, Luxembourg, um, and also um Usually not for clients in Francophone Africa, but for content that has been created there too. So kind mm-hmm. of all the different types of French that you might get <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in one way or another. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, so I specialize in, um, you know, commercial um, translation for large and small businesses and corporations. And I also do um, some book translations too and do book translations. So mm-hmm. kind of a mix and match of those to um, mm-hmm. get enough projects you know, and, and mix and match them. Um and I was going to say it's kind of interesting, too, that you would think it would mostly be uh, European clients, but I also um, uh, translate sometimes there's people in like South America or Hong Kong who want French to English translation. So I think that it shows that there's companies all over the world who, for, you know, whatever reason, they need that, even though it's French to English and they're in Hong Kong, for some reason, some client of theirs or some business deal they're doing, they need French to English, too, or whatever language that might be, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's yes. kind of interesting. So you're not specifically yeah, fixed to um, just European countries or, or America or, or North well, American countries? Most of the countries. time, okay. but, I would, but, mm-hmm. but sometimes it'll come, you know, kind of interesting. It'll come out of nowhere and hmm. it, it, so it just, just crosses all, all borders, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit about the American Translators Association's history and uh, its activities? Yeah, so um, I just want to, I have to say too, for the podcast, I'm officially representing myself mm-hmm. <laughs> and not yeah. in my role as the American translators and as a director, but um, I'm super glad to be able to tell you more about the organization. So thank you for mm-hmm. asking me. So the American Translators Association, or what we all call, you know, is a big mouthful. So we just say ATA. <laughs> yeah. It's a professional association um, for translators and interpreters too. And it was actually founded in 1959. And it is the largest professional association of translators and interpreters in the United States and actually in the world because the U.S. is such a, um, you know, um, 
in a, in a way, I mean, there's more people, right? It's a big, even though, and so we have, so in, like other in the European countries, they all have their own associations, but they're smaller countries individually. So the U.S. has the biggest association. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have um, t- over 10,000 members and people do join from all over the world. We have over um, 103 countries represented too. So mm-hmm. most members are from the U.S., but there are people all over the world that do join the ATA. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily um, is a prerequisite to be U.S. based, then. No. Mm, okay. Most people are, but there are people and who are quite active. I can you know, think of someone off the top of my head who lives in in the Netherlands, who is very active, or a lot of, um, especially in South America. There, we have um, you know Port- Port- people who work from Portuguese into Portuguese or into Spanish who are very enthusiastic members. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but mm-hmm. but most of the members are based in the U.S., but you don't have to be. Okay. And and what you mentioned um, that the ATA provides certifications for translators. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, the organization actually offers certification exams to translators in 29 different language combinations. And I don't know if people, if that's like a jargony term, I should explain that. Or I just want to talk about that a little bit. What language combination means is I just mean like me, my language combination is French to English. Someone else's might be um, Dutch to German, or it could be, you know, French to um, French to German, or whatever. It's just the languages that you translate, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So the uh, organization offers um, certification in twenty nine different language combinations, and because we are, it is a U.S. based organization. All of those combinations would have English in them, so it would be like right. French to English, English to French, or Italian, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and I wanted to point out, too, that um, professional translators normally work into their to their own native language. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my case, like, obviously, I would hope <laughs> my French is good. My French is very good. Um, but I would never translate um, uh, at a professional level into French, um, but only into English because that's my native language. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. And what has the impact of the pandemic been on your activities, both as a translator and as director of the ATA, if, if any, maybe mm-hmm. live yeah. <laughs> So I thought that was a really interesting question because um, I um, would mention I, I have been doing a, um, a podcast of my own since 2008, and it's called Speaking of Translation. And um, as far as we know, it was the first um podcast about like specifically about the translation industry and it's the longest running one and we just discussed that exact topic <laughs> so that was the perfect there were three three other panelists and we talked about that mm-hmm. um, and so I know from my perspective and from what I've heard from other people on that panel and otherwise is that I did see a distinct drop-off in projects because um, mm-hmm. it's all you know all what we do is pretty much project-based for especially well for freelancers and you know mm-hmm. yeah. um, so in March and April um, most of my clients dropped off um, and I do work for direct clients. So I might work directly for like a corporation or I might work um, or a publisher or I might work for a translation agency. So I have, you know, two sources of ways that projects are coming in. Mm-hmm. And um, for both of those, there was a big drop off. And then, mm-hmm. but for me, I do have one client um, that I, it's say a seasonal work that didn't happen to be affected by the pandemic. And so I worked a lot for them for April myself mm-hmm. personally. And I think there's just different kind of different stories out there. What happened to people kind of depending on what their industry was, like what their specialty is. If they did a lot of medical work, then maybe they still had work or if mm-hmm. they, you know, worked in the fashion industry, it's on a longer cycle. So that was okay. Or, you know, if yeah. specialty was something else, but most people I think did take quite a bit of a hit, at least in those mm-hmm. initial first months. Right. Yeah. And then um, you asked about the the uh, organization. Yeah. Yeah. So for the American Translators Association, I think just one thing was that, um, you know, the organization 
one of its purposes is to support its um you know, its members uh, with continuing education or like in this kind of pandemic, there was a lot of education provided about the PPP loans and things like that in the U.S. where people, mm-hmm. could, you know, how, how, how can you get through this and, you know, helping as a, any probably any professional organization would. And then a big change um, for the ATA um, was that we have changed for this year, our conference will be online. And so... Yeah. The conference, yeah, is is really. I know. I mean, I'm sure people have conferences, but I think in our little subculture, it's a the conference is a really big deal that most people, you know, are working away in their home office and kind of nerdy or whatever. Yeah, translating can be quite an isolating yes. activity, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I think too that we were really one of the first. Um, you know, everybody talks, especially now with the pandemic, about telecommuting. But really, mm-hmm. in the '90s, we people were like, "What? You do it over the internet?" You know, but that, <laughs> that was really, really, truly one of the first, I think, industries to be um, remote, or because they could be mm-hmm. remote as a, as, a, mm-hmm. as a. So, um, yeah. So the conferences, you know, are a really big deal, and normally there's about 2,000 attendees, and there's hundreds and uh, you know several hundred conference sessions, and so for the virtual event, um, there'll be 120 educational sessions that they're streaming live and also recording. And then um, there's there's planning special networking events that are virtual too. But that was a really big change. And it was, you know, a, um, a big step in the, you know, the organization needed to take, I think, in these times. But it was kind of a change from what we're used to, too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is this conference uh, a yearly event? Yeah, it usually happens every year. And it's usually, an, um, um, it's always in a different city, but it's like, like in New Orleans or San Francisco or Boston, New York, places like that. So that kind of a... Um, a, a marquee city where people want to go and mm-hmm. right oh, okay as, as a, and also remember a lot not everybody but a lot of those people are self-employed and so for them it's not where they're going to their employer and saying you know oh yeah do this boondoggle for me so it mm-hmm. needs to be somewhere that's a, appealing to people that they want to spend their money professionally mm-hmm. and then maybe you know sure. too mm-hmm right thank you for sharing that yeah and then for you personally what are the biggest challenges and rewards of being a French to English translator? Well, I think um, for me, one of the biggest challenges is just that it's the business perspective. I mean, it's not that I'm always challenged by it, but you have to, if you want to do it, you have to recognize that that's part of it. So you have to do the marketing like with anyone else who's has their own business, right? Mm-hmm. You, if you just sit back and think, I'm going to, I'm going to wait for the projects to come to my door, <laughs> then you're mm-hmm. not going to be in business very long. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, you know, you have to be a business, act like a business person, get those clients, do the networking, do the marketing, you know, you're doing all those pieces besides mm-hmm. just that kind of, you know, that can be fun and rewarding too. Like, oh, I got this really great client and they were super nice or whatever. But um, it's totally separate from the act or the art of translating. And so you have mm-hmm. to be able to do that too, to survive. Yeah. Um, you have to see yourself as a business. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. And then um, how about the rewards? Yeah, I think for me, and I think I can speak at least for some other translators since I've I've been around a long time and talked to a lot of people, um, was that um, for me, I just love language. And I know you probably hear this kind of thing, too, from like editors and publishing people who, you know, and and I'm looking at it from the perspective of two languages. And I'm Mm -hmm. also kind of a detail freak. So for me, it seems like it's this perfect storm (laughs) where I was thinking like, okay, because you literally have to trans have to consider 
every single word. Like, how does that word fit by itself? How does that word fit in the next three words? How does that word fit in a bigger phrase? How does that word fit in the context of the whole work? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you have to really be wanting to focus on that. Like, I think, um, you know, even sometimes when I've translated a book or I've translated a long commercial text and, and I think, well, if someone came back to me and said, why did you put or instead of and in this one page, you know, on the bottom of this page seven, I could literally tell them. <laughs> like it, 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 you know, it wouldn't be like, I don't know, I just wrote and, but I would know, you know, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. so I like that part. And I, um, and I also think another part that's really attractive to me is that you, it's, it's also this cultural knowledge comes into play where I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you know, translation literally is not literal. <laughs> it's not literal. And if it is literal, then it's bad. And mm-hmm. so you need to understand the cultural background or be able to understand when, oh, this is an idiom or oh, this is some special thing. It's not just, they're not just saying, you know, green or whatever. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I like that part, part too, that it's kind of, you know, you're super detailed. I like the detail part and that cultural aspect that comes into play. Mm-hmm. And do you think that um, having lived in France, I think on multiple occasions, mm-hmm. right, has, how big was the impact? Because obviously then you're kind of bathing in the French culture. Uh, did how, how big was the impact on your work as a translator? Well, I think that's super important, really. And I do think... Um, I think for my own self, I think because I have lived there different times, you know, over the years, three times over the years, but there's people too, you know, who do it and have lived there 20 years, which I haven't done. But I think for me personally, I'm also married to a French, Frenchman, a French person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. for me, we raised our kids bilingually and example, mm-hmm. an example. And when they were, till they were like five, they didn't even hardly know English existed. And so all their kids' books were in French. And for me, like that kind of stuff was really important. You know, even though I was in the U.S. at that time, I was immersing myself and like, oh, now I know how to say spade <laughs> because <laughs> it was in the kids book that blah, 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 you know, the, mm-hmm. and then also because they're, you know, they're trying to educate little kids to learn about yeah. the language around them. But also mm-hmm. some of the things like different things we read where we might have sung different songs together. And then later I would see, oh, it was this French traditional song. And now there's like a sly reference to it in this story. And I wouldn't uh-huh. have known that otherwise or whatever. Right. So I think for me, it was living there, but then also having kids that I was educating in French and kind of starting from the ground up too. My kids are now teenagers, so mm-hmm. yeah. Interesting. I always love stories of, of, of bilingual kids. It's, uh, I think it's an amazing gift to give to, uh, to children to be raised in, in two or, or multiple languages. Yeah. So, um, my yeah. son actually was just telling me, if, right before we started recording, my f- son was telling me, he said, Mom, I just saw this really funny French YouTuber and he was talking about what it's like to be bilingual. And, and he was like cracking up. And I said, in his French class, I said, well, no one understood, but you and the other bilingual kid in the class, you know, because you're the ones that are bilingual. And then he told me these funny jokes or whatever but yeah no that's- yeah that's wonderful and which of your translations do you specifically cherish fond memories of and and why well one of them is was a couple years back um it was a role-playing game so like a you know a not a um, electronic game but a game with cards mm-hmm. and stuff and mm-hmm. um the, I, I worked on it with a colleague uh, who also is a French-English translator, and I, we felt it was fun, first of all, and we had to come up with all these weird character names in English to match the feel of the French, but the funniest part, that I, why I'm giving this as my answer to your question, is that the target audience for the game, you know, was obviously like men, I'd say from ni- 19 to 35. 
<laughs> okay. And so, yeah, yeah. and so some of the characters in the game, for example, was like a sexy nurse, you know, <laughs> but, but it wasn't. And I thought when we first started translating, I'm like, uh Oh, like, am I going to not want to do this? And it, but it wasn't that bad. That was as bad as it got. <laughs> but then uh, we just thought it was so funny afterward that everybody seemed really happy with it. And I just pictured all these guys across the U S who were like 25 playing this game that two middle-aged moms had translated. And I just thought that was funny. <laughs> so then I have another one that's um, more related to books is that um, I worked on a um, translation of a nonfiction book that was about um, American Indians, indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And it was originally written in French by a French expert in Paris, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, French people, mm-hmm. at my experience, is they love the American West. So I, I can yeah. see, you know, a guy. I confirm that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like an expert thinking, growing up thinking, I want to be an expert on the American West. <laughs> and so um, so for me, I am not Alaska Native, but I'm originally from Alaska, and I was born and raised there. And so it was super interesting to me. And also parts of the text, just from a French perspective, being translated into English were very would be very un-PC, would be not politically correct. Like you would, it was like, my eyes got big. We can't say that in English, you know, like the way they said it. And so that was, you know, uh, made me feel good, like helping to modify or give, you know, or give the publisher um, comments on like, mm-hmm. well, you know, you, and they said, well, we're going to edit it and everything, but we could really say this is coming from this, but this is what we think, you know, kind of giving all mm-hmm. that feedback and helping to really mold that, that mm-hmm. work for the American market. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-mm. And um, speaking of like specifically American translations, so you live in the U.S. I imagine you, see, you use the American spelling and lexicon. And so does this mean you're mostly, um, if not exclusively, and you already answered this question a little bit in, in the introduction, but I was curious to hear more about it. Um, are you mostly hired by American and perhaps Canadian publishers and, and corporations or how about the UK? Do you have you have you ever worked for a UK company? I have worked for a UK company, but I haven't worked for a UK publisher. So <laughs> specifically, for publishing. So I've worked with some US publishers and some in Europe, and I think. I, you can tell me, but the, the prevailing wisdom I've kind of heard is that, oh, since it would be a U.S. publisher that would purchase the rights, you know, from the original publisher abroad, um, that the U.S. publisher would be the one to hire you. And I think that that is often the case. Mm-hmm. But in my own experience, um, you know, I've had that happen where a, a publisher approached me or I approached them and then we agreed to work together, a U.S. publisher. Um, but I've also been contacted quite a few times by French publishers um, mm-hmm. you know, asking them like to saying to me, Oh, would you please submit a sample translation? We're looking for a translator to work into English and we would like to do that, which kind of goes against mm-hmm. what, you know, when I've gone to book fairs and things like that, they say, well, mm-hmm. it would be the U S publisher. But my experience mm-hmm. has been that French publishers reach out and say, well, we, we want to get this into English, which seems, mm-hmm. you know, so that's interesting. And my assumption, and I'm interested in what you think is mm-hmm. that they want to get in the U S market. They couldn't get someone in the U S to buy it, a U S publisher to buy the rights, but they still want to get it in the U.S. market, so they're going to go ahead and have it translated themselves. I guess. I don't. Um, I mean, if it's if it was just a sample translation of about like 20, 30, 40, 50 pages, then uh, I think it's 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 a great tool to use uh, when indeed specifically trying to sell the rights to a, an American or or a UK company. You know, and this is we're going to talk about this a little later. And the English language market is historically a super super tough market to break into. Uh, for authors from from non-English language countries. And um, it's hard to 
Mm-hmm. To pitch a French book, for instance, to an American publisher. I mean, of course, it depends on on the the track record of the French book. What it, what has it done in France already in terms of sales and awards, and have there been any other foreign rights sales in other countries that that can make it more enticing for a U.S. publisher to start looking at a book? Um, because also often the U.S. publisher cannot read French. That's unfortunately a reality, oh, course, and yeah, yeah. that is um, it's it's not always the case. And I'm definitely also saluting the uh, all the all the French language or French reading uh, American editors here. But uh, so having an English sample just it's it's a great way to um, have the yeah reach a bigger American like it, it opens a lot more doors because then at least American editors editors who don't read French they can then at least get a sense of the writing you know especially I don't know if it was fiction or nonfiction but um, they can read some of it themselves, which can then um, convince them to actually hire a an external reader. Because then a reading report has to be made, which of course has to be paid for. So it's it's a it's a long process. That's <laughs> um, yeah. I can see what you're saying there. I, I guess I had when, a, a few times. I know for sure they weren't. They were just going to do it. And one was time was a um, was a well known. Um, a cooking, you know, cookbook publisher, mm-hmm. which probably, yeah. probably because they're so well known, I won't tell you their name, but are so well known mm-hmm. that they probably do maybe do the English in house just mm-hmm. because they're right. Like, yeah, that's a different, uh, yeah, different, a different story kind of, there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah. That that definitely happens too when when um, there's there's a feeling that this book deserves to have an English edition and and it can reach a, a wider audience and the French publisher or whoever is funding the translation is willing to put up that money uh then of course it's it, it ha- i've seen it happen in the past indeed that that non traditionally non-english language publishers published um an english translation of a of a book but it doesn't happen very often no okay yeah because then of course you also need to market it and you need to, <laughs> you right, need to have right. the sales panel, you that's, know that, that's, that, that's why i thought that's kind of odd to yeah. me like, okay yeah <laughs> if they want to pay for it then. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and what are your, what are your thoughts on the different payment structures for translators? And I'm mostly thinking now about for translators on, um, you know, book for, of books of, of literary text or yeah. fiction. So there is the, the, the structure that, uh, contains a, a fixed upfront fee and then no further royalty. So in case the book becomes a bestseller, the translator actually does not get any additional income or, and I think that's what's. Um, becoming more and more a, um, you know, habitual in the US and in the UK is that the translator gets paid in advance and then royalties on future sales. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Uh, what do you think about that? I don't know. My, yeah, I'm interested that you say that because my impression in just talking to people and maybe not like the, you know, the top most famous person who translated, I don't know, Asterix or something, that they, that it still is pretty common not to be offered royalties and have to fight yeah. really hard for that. Mm-hmm. And, and then it would be what I would consider called work for hire, you know, like you said, yeah. translators paid up front. Um, and I don't just to think, why is that? I just think that to me, it makes me think of like, it's something that people want to do <laughs> and it looks glamorous. And so they don't have as much to go or something. They don't have as much negotiating power because they, mm-hmm. there's people, lots of people who want to do it. And so they'll think, well, if you want royalties, I'll go to someone else or, you know, they, they're not in a mm-hmm. position of strength. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I also think um, 
that a lot of times, especially for, you know, higher level, little level literature translators are people who often, for example, are academics and that mm -hmm. they have another, you know, kind of quote day job mm -hmm. and they don't feel compelled to negotiate. That's at least from my perspective, you know, harder because mm -hmm. they don't need to do that. And it might be, it's interesting for them or it's prestigious or they can take a long time to do it or whatever, but it's not that that's their main thing where they're getting. Mm -hmm. money yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I'm, I think from what I, my understanding is that in, in non-English language countries, it's mostly, um, again, for literary translations, not, not for, um, yes, you know, yes. corporate, whatever, but book translations, yeah. the, the most common uh, structure is an advance plus royalties. But I think also the more literary you get, the more that is common. And then the more commercial you get, the more it's it's a it's a fee well a work for hire as you as you say but this is it's constantly changing and I've I've seen in in working with US and UK publishers I've I've come across to both you know both structures so I um and it, for me it, it just makes sense that if a book becomes a success that the translator then also um, you know, benefits from it as well yeah. because you know, as as, well, I as you, you know. <laughs> I can't. I, I don't want to tell you the name of it, but there was a book. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe ten years ago. It was French to English, and it was kind of obscure, and it was a huge hit in the U.S. Uh -huh. <laughs> and okay. the person, mm -hmm. like the, what we're saying, she I just never just thought, oh yeah, I'll do this. You know, as an academic, and it's kind of interesting, and this is a cool book, and do the research and mm -hmm. whatever. And then it was this huge hit, and she didn't get royalties. And yeah, you know, a lot of times, I can see how people would think too. Well, that's never going to happen anyway. I want to get the project, mm -hmm. and I don't want to be. Yeah, no, you know, right. bugging that. I don't know what people think, mm -hmm. but yeah. So that's an example. And then I was going to say too. Um, I um, I know I've told you um, before that I run a, a book club for translators from all over the world, mm -hmm. and we read um, various fiction in translation. So it can mm -hmm. be in any language. Awesome. As long mm -hmm. as we, yeah, as you read it, but it, so we could. Be, so we read recently one. Um, that was an important, considered an important 20th century work that's called Family Lexicon by Natalia Ginsburg. Mm -hmm, and it was yeah. published um, in Italian in 1963. And it mm -hmm. was recently retranslated by a woman named Jenny McPhee. And mm -hmm. I interviewed her for the book club and it was so wonderful. My friend was laughing at me. She said, you'll ask anybody anything. <laughs> mm -hmm. well, if you, they're not going to say yes if you don't ask them. So she mm -hmm. came on and she... Um, and she talks about that, that, you know, she is really trying to be an advocate and, and she's translated some very important Italian works. And so she's mm -hmm. someone who is kind of up there. And she said she, um, you know, that she sees some change in that, but that it's very important to battle for, you know, to, to make that point, like you're saying, and say, like, mm -hmm. well, if it's successful, um, then I'm part of that reason why it's successful in this market. And I should get mm -hmm. royalties, too, if they, um, if you know, if, if they if that comes into play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and one more thing I wanted mm -hmm. to say on that was um, there's a woman called Lisa Carter who is a literary translator from Spanish into yeah. English. Do you know Lisa I think Carter? Yeah, I, I think we've been in touch by email. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She's got and, like a big, like a blog. Yes, about yes. And I, and I, yeah. um, I have, a, I don't know if you do show notes, but I, I found a, I um, yeah, an article on her site, Interlingo, that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And she really talks um, about the, you know, pros and cons and how to, um, you know, really fight for and why you should fight for the royalties. So I can send mm -hmm. that to you too. Oh, you. yeah. I'll, yeah. And I'll include it in the show notes. Thanks for that. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, oh, it's good to hear her name again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then yeah, we 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 talked about this before the challenges of breaking into the English language market for non English language uh, fiction and non fiction, and um, particularly the U.S. market is very challenging. Why do you think this is the case? Yeah, 
I don't know. I, I, my thought is that it's just kind of a reflection of that larger American tendency to be insular. And mm-hmm. I think like, oh, it's a big country that only borders two other countries. One of mm-hmm. them is Canada, one's Mexico, and one speaks, you know, a lot of English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I just think about, you know, um, compared to Europe, where there's everybody living close together, and they kind of have to, you know, the, just the geography lends itself to being insular. Right. And mm-hmm. then I also, um, I recently read a Pew Research article that states that 92% of European students are learning a second language in school. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S. is 20%. And we probably all know the, you know, the kind of the mm-hmm. idea of those general stats. And I mm-hmm. think, um, and I also had another thought where I was thinking, oh, I, I remember when John Kerry was, you know, former U.S. presidential candidate, he was mocked for being able to speak French. <laughs> so, Are you serious? Wow. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that. Whenever that, whenever that election was years uh-huh. ago, yeah. I remember he spoke French and they were, they were, that was like a, a political liability. And so I, I know wow. that if something's in translation, oh I know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my son wants to be president. I'm like, well, you better hide them speak French. You know? yeah. <laughs> Just look what happened to him. But um, and I know that 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 kind of may not seem related because, of course, if you're reading it in translation, of course you're going to read it in English. But I just think yeah. that's kind of all mixed up together. And yeah, and, and I, but I do think as you know, a, a generational thing, people are becoming more open, and kind of having a more global view. Um, that I personally, maybe just because it's me, that think that the public would be um more open to reading translations, and that maybe the publishing industry is a little bit behind that. But I may be wrong. You know, that just what I see out there, and the, just as a consumer, I feel mm-hmm. like people. Would that and I actually mm-hmm. um, wanted to say that um, two books that come to my mind and tell me if you've heard of these, Marlene, is um, that I thought I would consider at least mini hits in the U.S. market that are translations are Convenience Store Woman by yes. Sayaka. Oh, I Murata. love that one. Sorry, I interrupted you. Can you say the name again of the author? Yes, yes, Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata. I guess my her pronunciation of her name, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And then also a man called, I guess it's a man called Ova by Frederick Bachman. And yes. that one in particular, I thought that like people that I have, you know, know, have friends all over the country, every single friend of mine was like, oh yes, my book club read that. I read that book. I love that book. And that was from, <laughs> translated from Swedish. So I just thought mm-hmm. anecdotally, it does seem to me, um, you know, that consumer prejudice against translated works may be changing. I don't mm-hmm, know why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, a little note, quick note on the, the convenience store woman, um, which I, I read because the, the U.S. editor, I think he sent me a copy. And uh, I know a couple of the international publishers of that book so that I also have an, another connection to it. And um, so it was also very helpful for me to read it, kind of to see what it was about and, and why several editors from several languages that I have a high esteem for were all in love with this book so and I understood it it's it is an amazing book totally different than the uh, man called Uwe or oh yeah uh, totally different outfit, yeah. but um yeah and of course there's also there's the Ferranti effect I guess you can uh, you can call it in the Elena Ferranti which I think she just recently a few days ago uh, published her latest book in English uh-huh. um so I I think there's there's definitely an um um growing interest or at least least resistance <laughs> let's right, right. put it that less. way less resistance yeah to 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 books in translation and um maybe also the fact that uh that netflix and, and other streaming companies are now also showing international shows right that came so to my mind too yeah that's super um, interesting maybe mm-hmm. it's kind of shaping away at that 
anti mm-hmm. not anti-foreign but like a reticence mm-hmm. yeah right yeah. yeah yeah the insular um yeah cultural thing and um there uh, yeah I, I think that's 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 an interesting point to to and and we'll see how that will un- unfold in the next couple of years um because they only started recently kind of to to stream international shows but and then i i've seen in in the u.s um it, i think it's interesting that you mentioned that only 20 percent of american students uh learn another language but uh, I, I have seen a, a rise in um like editors at U.S. companies who young on younger generation who tend to read one or two more languages, and there's not many of them, but it is. I think more. it's it, it, yeah, or maybe it's just wishful thinking on my <laughs> on my behalf. But uh, but that's uh, uh, or I'm seeing things too positively. But I, I definitely uh, am finding um, that it's now also possible to to come back to the question of having an English sample or not. It is possible to actually sell a book, a, a French book or or a German book without having an English sample. Now, of course, the Dutch, which I also sell rights to. Mm-hmm. Um, that is definitely a barrier, but uh, but then we uh, we always have different ways of um, of overcoming that. And I usually w- wait until if the German rights have sold, the German translation comes out, and then I I start submitting it um, because German is more widely read than Dutch, obviously, in uh, in the US. But um, yeah, interesting. And um, let's talk about um, yeah. So you say that you have a you have a a book club um, among translators of, of books in translation. And how about, I don't know if you still often read French books um, and if has, has any um, French book led you and that, that you read and that you were very enthusiastic about, has that led to you like pitching it to American publishers and then leading it to a sale of the English rights? Well, half of that is true. <laughs> half of what you've asked is true. Because I have done that several times, but, um, especially um, a couple YA books and I thought that, that I thought were interesting or just different things or one that was just kind of this like funny memoir um, that I have tried to pitch, but I was not successful in getting someone mm-hmm. to make that up. So I have used that um, technique, but it didn't work. So, mm-hmm. um, but I do have a colleague I know for whom this has worked. Um, and, and in her case, it was specifically with a niche publisher that publishes in a really um, specific um, subject area that she is very familiar with mm-hmm. and that she's passionate about and that she wrote to them and that she has done several books for them. So I think, mm. you know, that can work. It hasn't worked for me yet. We're keep trying. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, or sometimes I think I, I, one time I was, this is actually funny. I cause I um, do children's books um, and my two and my um, sons, when they were little, I read the, I don't know what they're called in English. The, is it PJ masks? And I literally thought, mm. okay, how can I, how can I get these translated? And then I thought, these are so French. No one will ever want to read them. They'll turn me down. And now I think, oh my gosh, I could be a millionaire because those are so popular. It's these kids' mm-hmm. characters, you know? And then, so that's kind of interesting. I thought about that one and didn't act on it. And they probably had, you know, a corporate way of going about it. But mm-hmm. I, I thought I, my instinct was right. I should have, you should have followed through with that one. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know sometimes the corporate way um, is it's it's possible to to work parallel or in combination with uh, the enthusiasm of a of a translator. I've I've already been in in several situations like that. So, uh, um, and for students who are thinking about becoming a translator, what would you what would you give as if you have just one piece of advice to give? I guess if I had one piece of advice, just what I've seen in other 
people over the years is be honest with yourself about your language skills and the language you're translating from and your own writing skills in your native language. So if you really want to be a translator, you need to really be at like the top, top, top language skills of, of like, you know, knowing that other language. So like as, as, a, as a person, a second language learner, right, in some fashion. Mm -hmm. And then also in sort of for comprehension. And then also you need to be one of the top, top writers in your own language because you mm -hmm. have to be able to write well. So just like it's very unlikely that if you lived in Spain for six months when you were 20, you know, <laughs> which, people can, which you may think that seems like a ridiculous example, but people say that all the time, like, oh, I don't need mm. you to translate that. My neighbor's son went to, Fr went to France for a week, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating, but not really. Yeah, but I think just yeah. that, you know, you, you have to really know the source language backwards and forwards, and you have to really be able to write. And then also mm -hmm. that is related to that is, you know, for you writing into your native language, are you someone that everyone in your family or all your friends come and ask you pesky grammar questions because they know you love it and then, <laughs> or would you you know have you in the past like sat out drinking and discussed the subjunctive tense for hours is that you <laughs> oh so just, just think about you know before you get into studying like you know refined translation technique or further study of translation itself do you have the background linguistically to, to, to go forward with that mm-hmm mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you for that. And now let's talk about some books just unrelated to translations or, or maybe maybe they are related to translation. But I was just curious to hear if you read any book recently or books that you were completely blown away by and that you wanted to recommend to our listeners and um, and why. Yeah, so I do have two books I want to talk to people about. One is kind of looping back around to the book Family Lexicon. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about that that I mentioned that was translated by Jenny McPhee. Mm -hmm. um, it is a, the portrait of a family. The, the, the book itself is highly autobiographical, but it's categorized as fiction. Mm -hmm. And it talks about this family, this kind of unwieldy, boisterous family <laughs> um, mm -hmm. in, in fascist Italy before, during, and after the Second World War. So it, um, I liked it because... I'm in, kind of a nerd, you know, <laughs> but I mean, also it, it really talks about um, 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 20th century history and also it's um, kind of different, not, not as different as Convenience Store Woman that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. but it's a little bit different than American style, but it's very energetic and it just, and she, um, I just really like the history aspect and her style of writing. Mm -hmm. And that's by Natalia Ginsburg um, mm -hmm. and she wrote it and it was originally published in 1963 and the translation I read was to, in, published in 2017. Okay. Right. Yeah. Thank and, you. And the second book is one that I am actually listening to on audio, and I like reading, reading, reading. I don't know what you can, as opposed to audio more. But this was a memoir, and I realized that the author um, was the one who was reading it, and I thought it would be interesting. So it's called um, "Nobody Will Tell You This But Me: A True As Told to Me Story," and it's by Bess Kalb. K-A-L-B. And um, the device she uses in the story is that she talks through her, gra her grandmother has died <laughs> and she, mm -hmm. but she uses the voice of her grandmother to tell the story of their family. And like I said, this is a, me is a memoir. Mm -hmm. And um, she also tells the story of her grandmother's own mother who came over from Belarus as like a 12 year old girl on her own to make it her way in America. And I just thought it was inspiring and listening to the, you know, these tales, it's like amazing what people mm -hmm. did, you know, to, to, to change their lives. So I, that was, that's what I'm um, reading right now. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you for those two. I will also include those in the show notes. Um, I'm almost done with my questions. I mean, is there anything I missed during the interview that you'd like to mention here? 
I don't think so. I think we covered, you know, I can, nothing else jumps to mind. I kind of threw my ideas in there. So nothing comes <laughs> to mind right now. All right. Well, then uh, let's wrap it up. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Eve. And uh, thank you again for accepting my invitation. Thank and, you for the invitation. Um, yeah and um hopefully we'll um i you know boulder has been on my uh has been on my radar i've i've heard plenty of great stories about it i have a few friends actually who live in the area so i'd love to come visit whenever you know yeah that'd be great weird thing that yeah, don't, don't forget to tell me if you come <laughs> i will i will but uh but for now let's uh let's stay in touch um and um yeah have a great afternoon and uh we'll speak soon thank you all right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the MakeBooks Travel Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Check out the agency's website, 2CsAgency.com, for more information and resources about the international publishing scene. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a positive review. Merci et à la prochaine.